Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. Today's a fun one. Today is Jeff Kling Day on the podcast. Jeff Kling was chief creative officer of Fallon up until May of this year when he resigned his post in Minneapolis and moved his family back to New York to, quote unquote, take some chances. Jeff joined Fallon in 2012, where he led successful campaigns like Get Your Taxes Won for H&R Block starring John Hamm and Arby's We Have the Meats. Prior to Fallon, Jeff was ECD at Euro, where he famously created the most interesting man in the world campaign for Dos Equis, which pretty much deserves its own wing in any advertising hall of fame. From 1996 to 2003, Jeff worked at Wyden Kennedy, where he authored the famed Miller High Life campaign shot by Errol Morris, which broke every beer advertising rule and cliche to hilariously heroicize the average working man. Jeff later returned to Wyden as ECD of Amsterdam, where he helped create Nike Write the Future, which probably goes down as the most epic World Cup ad of all time. After a resume like that, it should come as no surprise. Jeff has received every major industry award. He was named Copywriter of the Year three times by the AICP. Last year, Forbes named him one of the 14 creative directors you should have on speed dial. There's not a single person in advertising whose body of work or comedic writing ability I'm more in awe of than this man. This is Jeff Kling and I talking to ourselves. So we start all of these in the same spot. Jeff Kling, where are you from and what did your parents do? Oh, well, I've spent so much of my life running away from both those questions. It's uh, hard to answer something. You're like even Bruce that Wayne in the cave right now? <laughs> yeah. It's all coming back uh, to you? Yeah. I was born in uh, the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. For those Trump voters who don't know where the nation's capital is. Um, and my dad was a salesman um, in a dying industry. And my mom was an assistant to an oral surgeon who had worked for my grandfather, my dad's dad. That's how they met. What did 12-year-old Jeff Kling want to be when he grew up? I had no designs on the future at all. And that really hasn't changed. I don't tend to think more than like 17 seconds into the future. Yeah, but now you know enough that it's it's a it's a conscious strategy. Back then, it was just a, it was in your bloodstream. I'm glad my wife's car, when we got into it this morning to drive the kids to school, my calendar popped up for the day miraculously with our date with the microphone. And she said, Who's Ahmed Farhan? What's that? And I was like, oh, sh- is that today? You know, and then I, had, I hadn't yet learned to sync my calendars. You've been a person with a lot of responsibility for a long time. This seems problematic. Yeah, yeah. Do people I mean, accommodate this because yeah, you're they good do. enough at the other part of it? I guess. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. People accommodate a lot of things. We, we people need uh, their problems. Problems are a luxury. Um, they're a luxury for advertising agencies and they're a luxury for creatives who say, I'm a problem solver. Uh, and they're a luxury for people, CEOs and CMOs who go into a fucked up situation and which situation just says, solve me. And, and, and they have the luxury of being told exactly what to do because they have problems. Uh, so I suppose I'm a problem child for some people and have been, but, um, no one's murdered me yet. So. (laughs) <laughs> so I guess it's all right. I'm, I'm giving them that luxury. Uh, when did you first become aware of, of this industry I as guess. a thing that might make sense for you? 
Um, I I didn't realize that uh, advertising was a thing you could do until I was deep into my 20s. Yeah. And I've told people this in various ways before, but I was in a, a really awkward situation as a uh, – as a 20-something who knew everything and had everything figured out um, and had a fancy degree from a fancy university with honors, uh, but who had never um, taken the grit to ask that basic question of what is there to do with a life? I knew I didn't want to be in in academia, like on the eve of graduation, but hadn't the slightest notion what to do. Um, so after odd jobbing and several jobbing simultaneously um, in college towns in North Carolina for about six years, um, doing everything like building houses and tutoring Japanese kids in English and um, mowing farm property and making pizza and then being a vice president of quality control at a burgeoning young mail-order soccer supply empire, various things. Um, There was somebody who helped me realize that I was, you know, I knew I wasn't happy, but I just suspected it. And yet I was accommodating this life that I was living, mentally accommodating it, making room for it in my soul. Like, you know, I, I can afford a couple bedroom house and I can be with this woman and we can have a fence delineating our property and we can have cookouts and stuff and it's great. It's the dream. The dream, right? It just wasn't my dream. And I knew um, I was fundamentally accommodating something that I knew not to be true for me out of fear of trying something new. And when somebody helped me realize that, I got so mad at myself that I uh, – immediately quit my job with respects and thanks and declared that I was going to move to New York to thrive or starve on my creative wits. And I did not know what that would look like. I didn't know if I was going to start a greeting card company, if I was going to be a a New Yorker cartoonist. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be. And uh, concurrent with that, I, uh, referencing the awkward position of being a a know-everything 20-something who hadn't asked that basic question, what do I do? I asked a friend that question and he said, oh, dude, you totally need to go into the advertising. Um, it was his field. And so I asked him what that was about and he's an account guy and he's like, well, you can, you can do this, you can do it on the account. There's the account side, there's the creative side and if you want to be a creative, you have to have this thing called a book, a spec book. You know, he just told me all about it, told yeah. me the play. So, so, that was in the same swirl at the same time. So by the time I moved to New York, I had done a spec book. And right after I declared that I had quit my job and was moving, uh, some people uh, hired me based on that spec book. I mean, I had unbelievable good fortune from the beginning, like the whole universe whispering like, you're on the right track. Um, like keep going. Yeah. And I liked where it was going. So um, – so yeah, it led to New York for two years, and then um, and then an agency job at at Wyden, and um, like that, I've I've been in advertising since then. The year was 1996. You make your way to Wyden, um, 
1996, Wyden Kennedy was a big deal, and it sounds like you got there pretty quickly, you know, vis-a-vis -vis when you were introduced to the industry as a thing. Can you remember what the agency was like the day you walked through the door? And could you explain how a colleague might describe you the day that you walked through the door? Um, well, I was a disaster. I mean, I tried – I uh, my first day – at Wyden was Wyden's uh, Founders Day party, so not a day at the office. It was um, I had already I as soon as I got hired, I was already being faxed briefs and having to write um, uh, Nike ads like for the for their ad kit for the retail ad kit. So I went you know within a two week span before I ever even landed at Wyden, I went from having no advertising other than radio. In, in my book of experience to having like 200 print ads. And it was, it was just very, you know, it was very fast paced and it was, um, I had no idea what I was doing and I had really good creative direction from, from Stacy Wall and um, whom I credit with, with so much. I mean, without Stacy, Stacy and Susan Hoffman were partnered at the time. And uh, Susan said, <laughs> she said, <clears throat> Clay, I just thought you were another one of Stacy's jokes. You know, like she didn't get it at all. She didn't get my book. Um, you know, we would later go on to be partners and, and are still very dear friends. And I adore Susan, but it, I really owe Stacy thanks for that job and really Jelly Helm because he, you know, that YouTube video um, where there's like one wing nut at an outdoor music festival and he's just dancing alone sure. by the fence and then the second guy decides to join him and do it and then that gave everybody else permission to join and suddenly there's a 300 person spontaneous dance party out by the fence yeah it's really that first guy who decided to join the idiot i was the idiot in that scenario and jelly was the one who saw something in my book and said we should fucking talk to this guy we should hire this guy um and a job like that so early in your career, it's like you don't even totally realize the habits that you're picking up. Whatever you're doing just sort of feels normal and the people around you feel like, yeah, these are what colleagues are. And it just so happened that the colleagues that you're naming are people who essentially like defined the end of 20th, 20th century and beginning of 21st century advertising. Did you, did you have a sense that you were like in rarefied air and with people that would – that would be remembered at the time or was it just a bunch of people doing their best? Well, I gave myself a brief and in in pursuit of that brief and executing that brief, I, I made wild mistakes, but um, but I was right and I was by right I was right by dint of where I was. Um, I and specifically I decided, I just told myself, look, they hired me, so I assume they want me. I'm not here to write like that guy or that woman. I'm not here to make ads. I'm here to be me and I'm going to get paid to be me. And from, from the jump, I just decided that's the way I, I'm going to play it because that's the only way I'm going to have any satisfaction in my life. You know, right. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to fake it. I don't want to pretend. I just want to just kind of go. And, and bear in mind that I, was, I left North Carolina in a, any kind of conventional path or life so that I could thrive or starve based on creative possibility, right? So uh, on day one at the Founders Day party, which in included a talent show, I decided, you know, my set of, of creative endeavors included stand-up comedy. Um, I was horribly wrong. <laughs> no, 
I was I was so jet lagged and spent from from the trip over and I just I got up on stage and for the first time in my in my then life I drew a complete fucking blank. Drew a complete blank. So like the entire like the to the extent I had a routine and it, I just kind of arced it in my head and I've I've usually been pretty good at extemporaneous speaking. Um, this current podcast performance notwithstanding. Um, I just drew a fucking blank and I was up there looking in my brand new job in a brand new city that I just committed to looking at all these faces and then expecting something for me and my mind was just was nothing. Was nothing. Yeah. Your confidence <laughs> in that moment exceeded your abilities yeah. and calm under pressure. Oh and, my God. And it was all was... just washing over you on stage in front of a quiet room of of, it, of cruel faces. So there was a there was a robust conversation going on behind my eyes, and then that conversation, you know, kind of got externalized and fed by the audience who started heckling me. And you know, I naively assumed like, oh, they're going to embrace the new guy and be like, wow. And a lot of people did, you know. And they're like, most people thought I showed incredible guts or stupidity or yeah. something by by um, daring to be up there. And I had no clue what to expect. I mean, it was it was you know. To Mike's point, a pretty competitive and vicious environment. It was not supportive of the performer, <laughs> Omid. It was not supportive of the uh, of the performing. But instinct. what a way to show up on day two and be like, so again, I'm Jeff. So I started nice from you. the, you know, and I just started clowning myself from day one, yeah. and I just it was it was phenomenal. It was just like literally with every with every syllable and comma I write, anything I do, it's only up from from that first day. Right. Um, and so my every interaction and my every normal conversation with everyone, my every assignment, everything, I just bombed and made a spectacle of myself. So everybody in the agency and everybody giving out assignments was thinking of me and wanting to try me. And so I got an outsized number of looks. I took a swing at everything. And I just very quickly started producing and getting to know everybody in the agency and having a shit ton of fun. It, yeah. was, it was just – it was so fun. It was so fun. 96 to 2003, I assume there were probably multiple years there where you felt pretty content and kind of felt like your, your, the duration of your career would be spent in Portland at this place doing these things. Yeah, but I, I want to backtrack just a sec because I gave myself massive credit for having given myself this brief. Like you're here to be yourself. They hired you for you, so yeah. be you. Um, while I made colossal mistakes – from that place, um, it's because Dan and David believed and still believe in the power of the individual voice uh, to do something special. Um, it's because they 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 have a, a real philosophy and approach that believes in that. I mean, they're essentially renting individual voices, mm. visual and verbal voices. They're renting those voices to brands and in the process, letting people do wildly special, unique and individual things and making the brands on whose behalf those people express themselves very human, very relatable. That's why that's why Wyden creates brands. That's why the stuff that comes out of the Wyden factory is stuff that people called consumers want to have a relationship with. Right. They have an emotional relationship to the stuff that comes out of there because it's all very human. It's very messy. Um, it's hard to flow chart it. It makes its own kind of sense, but it really respects the emotional apparatus 
of the human animal, and it's that's by design. So I was wanted for my individual voice. I didn't know that going in, but I assumed it. And um, I was lucky that I landed at Wyden because that's the environment in which I could thrive with that approach. I don't think – in fact, I know I couldn't have done that anywhere else. Yeah, it must create uh, It must create a really interesting challenge in hiring because you're looking for people who have this individual voice. In some ways, you're looking for people who – don't know or don't care too much about the legacy of the of the company and have this sort of fanboy mentality about it because all that's going to do is tighten them up in an environment where it's imperative that you're loose. It's imperative that you're yourself. It's imperative that you're not trying to like, you know, live up to the legacy of of these ghosts in the hallway. Yeah, no, they're, you know, Jim Riswold, Dan Wyden, they're all looking to be beat. They're looking to hire people better than they are. And I'm looking to do the same thing. It makes hiring easy because normally when you, you look at product that comes out of school or you look at books, they're just – they're a sea of sameness like brands. And if you're not feeling anything, well, if you look at a series of books and, and you don't see anything that you wish you had done or if you don't spark to anything, if you don't respond to anything in there, that's super, super hard. Because then you have to have a conversation with somebody and just say, look, here's, here's what I'm looking for. Um, and you know, I, I have this – thing where I want to help everybody the way I was very graciously helped um, when I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And so it becomes really hard when people just are so earnest and so full of light and hope, but they're just like – they're just mirroring the world back at the world and they're mirroring advertising back at advertising. And there are lots of places where you can do that and make a decent living. That is mostly what most advertising is and what mostly most terrible blend in anonymous brands want. So that's cool. It's just that that's not that's not what I look for. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't I can't promise a brand that I'm going to make them distinguished and remembered and beloved and then hire an army of people who don't even know what that means. Yeah. Don't but when you when you're that. looking for someone in their mid to late 20s who has their own distinct voice and is not afraid to use it, is part of that that you bring them in and forgive them their brashness, you know, forgive them their sort of too dumb to know what to be afraid of, which is both a gift and a curse early in your career. Because, you know, I, I've always felt like it's you either have to forgive somebody for being a little bit too brash and struggling to listen right, or, or forgiving them for um, not being able to speak up and not knowing how to speak truth to power and saying yes because they're trying to make you happy. But you can teach the brash person how to listen maybe much easier than you can teach the person who nods yes to everything, how to how to be bold, you know. I don't know. I, well, I don't know. I mean, there's a stubbornness to brashness, and I think life has to humble the brash or the arrogant before they'll figure things out. I find that the people who have the power um, and who have that real individual take, they often lack the courage, um, or the, they lack the self awareness to know it. Yeah. And so you have to listen around the edges or, you know, you're asking to – like they don't want to show you that one script or that one thing. And they do. And and the thing that they were really embarrassed about and really tentative about and didn't think was good enough is spectacular because it's so vulnerable and there's something in it that's like – that's just very true, you know, and yeah. that you feel. Um, I, I, I know now – I know now retro <laughs> – retroactively that um, – the creative group at Euro RSCG turned it into a bit of a like a 
like I got very predictable with that. Like they knew that if they if they came in and they pretended they didn't want to show something that they really wanted me to buy, that I'd be extra interested in it, and it, it substantially increased the percentage likelihood that I'd approve it. Yeah. Those motherfuckers, I'm looking at you, Creer. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty clear to me talking to you just that like the the widened tenets of you know staying unpredictable, staying loose, approaching business as you know jazz more than as math is is in your bloodstream. Maybe to an extent it was in your bloodstream before you got there, but have you found as you've gone on to different jobs, is there anything in particular that you found, you know, from the widened way that has been impossible to, to bottle and to export as you've gone on to different jobs? Well, I mean, Wyden and Kennedy as an institution is predicated on the very difficult proposition that Creativity is formula resistant. I mean, a lot of people want to pay for turnkey processes, and there's this very, you know, very formulaic rigor um, through which we arrive at the answer. And um, you know, creativity is messier, and innovation and and um, something that slingshots us all forward is messier. It's you know, the apple landing on your head, or um, displacing water in your bath, you know, and suddenly figuring out something you didn't think you were thinking about, you know. So, um, you know, and Wyden's not perfect. I'm not, I'm not here to, to advertise and, and advocate for that brand. It does a lot right. So I think, um, I think, I think brands will benefit from people who uh, know how to make them, um, super relatable and beloved and, and, and people who know how to make fans for brands, um, which I think is our job. And if there can be some uh, reliable, sustainable professionalism with which that, um, that um, ideal is accomplished on a day-in, day-out basis, I think that's, that's the ideal for everybody. Yeah. You know? having, um, having enjoyed your work for 20 years, before I knew you were making it and before I actually knew that advertising was a profession, um, I have a theory about you and you can tell me if it's true or not. Okay. <laughs> so there's a very special kind of laugh um, that happens in brainstorms and with, when creative people gather. And it's because there's a lot of pressure and laughter helps lower the pressure. And so sometimes you're in a brainstorm and you know someone cracks wise about a line in the brief or someone throws out an idea that's you know just so brutal that you know, you can't let it go. And and it garners a real laugh, not an uncomfortable laugh, not a nervous laugh, but a real sort of surprising people kind of bolt up in their seat laugh. And I feel like a a, a consistent thread through your work is I can I can feel someone in the room fixated on the real laugh and burrowed into that laugh and didn't let it go and said, if we're all laughing a real laugh in this room right now, this has to be something. Wow. Oh, um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, hold on to that romance though. That's beautiful. No, I mean, there's, I think I'm getting bad at humor too. I think I'm getting extremely unfunny in my old age. Too. You've probably been saying that every year for 20 years though. I don't know. I like, I just don't, I don't believe necessarily in comedy anymore. 
I don't believe I, the You're older shit. No, the older I get, the more raw I get. I mean, I mirth isn't the only emotion, you know, and and young men especially go for comedy. They're like, it's a crutch. I was a class clown. I know how to make people laugh. I, you know, and and there's 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 different ways to do that. Some people get laughs at others' expense. Some people are mean spirited. Some people like to tear down the the institution and you know for the for the underdog. I mean, there's lots of ways to do it, but we're trying to make an emotional connection with people, and we have a lot more. There's a lot more of the human emotional spectrum than the mirth part at our disposal. You know, we can create awe. We can create reverence. We can make people feel vulnerable or uncomfortable. There's there's just lots. There's lots, and I feel like comedy is a trap, and you see it like. Like um, there was a point – I'll go back early days at Wyden. Um, one of the first things we did as a group and I was in this this rogue group with Susan Hoffman and John Boiler and Ned McNeilage and Jeff Williams and, and we were like um, – we were a little under-occupied with Nike stuff. And so there was a little window in time where we got to ask ourselves, what kind of brands do we want? What do we want to pitch? And we all wanted a beer. We all wanted a big beer. So we went after Miller. And we won Miller Genuine Draft. And to um, kind of reboot that brand because it was in a, a dire place, um, we wanted to do two different things. And I was coming, keep in mind, from a comedy background. And I was I was deemed like a funny kid. You know, yeah, you did like, that awesome stand-up. Yeah, I was just slaying. <laughs> um, and and so we did two approaches and one was like – one was this – we you know we coined the term macro brew and it was these very blunt, raw, very real and authentic lines about beer, right? Um, it's time for better beer breath and like just like – just kind of running right at it. Um, and then there was this other – what I'll now call especially what is like a thousand years later, a very conventional approach where it's situational comedy, beer-centric humor – Casted, I casted Norm Macdonald and um, Vicki Lewis from News Radio and wrote comedy scripts, you know, like uh, allegedly to Miller Genuine Draft's advantage. Every time I would – so we pitched with these scripts. We pitched with that other stuff. It was a killer package. But every time I read those scripts, people fell the fuck out. Like I would perform these fucking things. People are howling. Right. So much so that Dan Wyden insists, like right before the holiday break, before we're all going back to our families and stuff, let's get together in the lobby and announce the Miller win and let's have Kling read these fucking scripts to the entire fucking agency in the old Deacon building. So like people are in like a, a human layer cake just going up all the way up the atrium, yeah, almost the to the Senate. Floor. It's the Senate from Star Wars. Yeah. And and dumbass me, you know, just half a year into this job, I'm I'm in the spotlight and I'm and I'm just like, you know what? This is how I started day one. Only now I've got some some real material yeah. that I, that I uh, put my back into. Right, I read that to the agency. Fucking agency dies, just dies. Right. Now bear in mind, I don't know shit about the process. Right. So I don't know where we go from here. I don't know how to produce anything. And so that whole aspect just got kind of taken away from me. And the agency in concert with the client, made a very conventional director choice. I didn't participate in that decision at all. I didn't know, like, is this guy gifted with dialogue? Like, what's the fucking deal? And he was like the director du jour. And, and bottom line is, while they slayed every time I performed them, 
ha ha ha, that laugh that you referred to, or like you imagine in those rooms, the fucking spots were deadly. They were deadly unfunny. Like, like to where you look at them and you go, I, I'm, I have no words for this. These are fucking horrible. And um, Dan convinced the client not to run them because fortunately we had that other stream of work. And I remember when Dan Boiler and I laid out all these layouts and it had all these, you know, half-baked thoughts like it's time for a good old macro brew and it's time for beer imported all the way from Milwaukee, which may sound familiar to anybody (laughs) who's seen seen Chrysler uh, or has seen Anomaly's macro beer work on behalf of Budweiser. Uh, Yes, Byrne and I did cross over at Wyden. Um, Dan was looking at all that new genuine draft work spread out and all it was was black and white photographs with these honking lines splashed out across them, not even particularly typeset or laid out. And he looked at it and he just goes, he was aware of the comedy work and and he just looked at all that stuff and he goes, this feels like a brand. Right. And that's how he looked at everything. And now now conversely, before I knew advertising was a profession and before I knew who you were, the year was 2000 and I was a junior in college. And I was sitting in the apartment with my three buddies watching TV. We were still in the 40 drinking stage of our lives. Mm. And uh, and then a commercial came on and it said, egg salad, potato salad, macaroni salad. But besides that, no salad. <laughs> it was from Miller High Life. <laughs> yeah. And we looked at each other and no words were spoken. And for the next year and a half that we lived in that house, the only beer we drank was Miller High Life. It, the equation was as simple as college dudes see ad, college dudes <laughs> like ad, college dudes become loyal advocates for the brand. So That's that can be powerful. And then I saw the hot dog ad later, which to me is is comedic writing in a commercial that hasn't been seen before or since. Who cares what's in a hot dog? When diverse cast-aside elements come together to form something great, That's the American way. No, you do not ask of the hot dog. The hot dog asks of you. What are you made of? What spice do you add to the national knockwurst? What flavor do you contribute to the high life? Oh, funny. That hot dog ad started as a print ad years before for high life, and it just said, who cares what's in a hot dog? I couldn't even, uh, I didn't even understand that line. You know, I wrote it and I was just like, wait, this is the brand we made. The line for beer, it just says, who cares what's in a hot dog? And it's got the beer logo, you know, and that was just, I didn't even, I loved that. Um, Listen to me smell my own farts. No, the only reason you saw that High Life ad is because the aforementioned genuine draft work was an you know, the, an organ rejected by the Miller body and by the world of uh, consumers. Yeah. So Miller Lite was shitting the bed from Fallon with all – you remember the Dick campaign? Sure. Which I found aggressively unamusing <laughs> and false. Um, the genuine draft work, which was like 10 people and, some, you know, found cool, um, was not being embraced by the D drinker. And so High Life got all of the media weight that was bought way in advance. So High Life was its budget beer, 
Miller doesn't make any money on sales of it, but um, because we were asked to do a campaign for it and the, the brief for the entire beer was make it so we don't have to discount the beer any further. That was our brief. So we did that campaign. So it existed and because it existed, they're like, fuck, <laughs> put it on. That's how you saw it. Right. You saw it because the other shits failed. Well, you saw it because the thank God other for that. yeah, no kidding. I'm going to ask you to smell <laughs> one or two more farts and then we will move on. Okay. Um, I remember Dos Equis before the most interesting man. I remember it was a beer that you bought when they were out of Corona and Modelo. Oh, interesting. I certainly remember a time when it wasn't on every tap in every sports bar and restaurant in America. Right. Um, and I assumed that the brief that you got was probably at a time when the brand was, was gasping for life. Um, and so I wonder if you can just take me back a little bit to the brief that you were handed right. and and what your ambition or expectation was. You know, it was a Mexican import beer and Heineken had distribution rights. So it was just like staying in its lane and right. doing its portfolio management job. And, and it was it was performing as expected, let's say. And it wasn't – I don't even think it was thought of as a huge opportunity. You know, when when these clients have all of these brands and they have to decide, you know, which which is going to be the runner and how do we position everything and how does it all fit together, it's easy to overthink. Um, and I'm sure you can appreciate. I was at Euro RSCG at the time, so you know, my charter was to make that place known for creativity. Um, it had vestigial creative and strategic chops from um, when it was Mesner, Viterre, Berger, Schmetterer, um, which got absorbed by the, the French Euro RSCG. Um, but yeah, so I was looking for absolutely any opportunity to be creatively expressed and to get people pivoting their heads and going, where'd that come from? Yeah. Um, Dos Equis was an obvious such opportunity, just a tiny thing. Um, but I had great hopes for it. Um, and we – so when we started out, um, the most interesting man was about the 17th campaign proposal for them. And there were several regime changes at Heineken and whatever we were going to sell through not only had to go through – Heineken and had to go through the Mexican brewery that um, owned it at the time exclusively before right. Heineken bought it. And it was just like, it was so, so hard. And we had the, we did one campaign for it that was really just, I mean, it meant well, but it was like, you know, it was trying to be the, you know, the extra authentic Mexican beer, the one you knew about if you knew a little bit more about Mexico than Corona, you know, and it was like this fucking boring story about, going down surfing in Baja and this was a part of it. And it was just like, that was a fucking snooze fest, but it was all we could get beautifully shot, but all we could get sold through. And then, and then we went into, you know, there was another client. We went into rounds of revision and what are we going to do next? And I just, you know, like the, the whole brand was headed up by a Colombian guy who fundamentally looked down on Mexicans, you know? And he's like, why would you call something Mexican? That's an insult. We're like, what the fuck did you just say? You know what I mean? Like he was in charge of this Mexican import premium beer. What? Uh, so I had just given up hope. I'm like, what? if we're going to get a creative hit, it's got to be on in this other – all these other things. It's not going to be on Dos Equis. And then a client 
roster change shifted everything. And a wonderful... Uh, Out with the racist Colombian and well, with yeah. a reasonable human being. Yeah, who fought really, really hard, like really hard to get that institution to kind of get out of its own way and let this thing live. I mean, even after the launch spot was uh, was in the can and shot and edited and ready to go, it was still held up for two weeks. Um, and, you know, you you look back on a campaign like that and you're like, well, what, what was the holdup? Of course you run that campaign, of course, because we now, you know, we know what happened. We know the results. We know how it got embraced. But before it let out the door, there was un unreal fear because I, like, I, and I get it, but clients who, ha who are tasked with creating fame for brands, creating love for brands so that people embrace them and, 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 and a lot and buy a lot more of it, right? They know, you know, rationally, that's your job, but emotionally, you really have to put yourself out there. Yeah. You're putting yourself out, you and your professional reputation, you're putting it out there on public display and sending it down the runway. If, if you're like a retiring, um, super rational business school type and you look at the numbers and you love data and all these things, like... There's not enough beer in this ad. There's not enough people yeah, telling like, you to drink me, beer in this ad. Give me something to hold on to that's right. just like... And look, the ads are full of fucking beer and right. all that. So that none of that's the problem. Like I said, it's in the can and it's still not going out. So, so something's up, you know, and it's just, it's fear. Well, the, the strategic thrust of that campaign that was the true differentiator was the line, I don't always drink beer. And we take that line for granted now and it's funny and it's interesting. But, mm -hmm. you know, part of working uh, on the client side so often is you have to kind of buy into a certain delusion that people – love your brand and interact with your brand in a way that's really not true. Right. There and is so no other brand before ours. Yeah, so to acknowledge that, you know, how dare you acknowledge that people would drink things besides Dos Equis to hydrate themselves? I would have to think that, was that the, was that the point of fear? No, I don't, I don't even know what the point of fear was. I think it was much more visceral, much more basic than that. Right. Like, um, and I know that because I got a, you know, a, a sweaty call from the, from the Heineken North America CEO. And, um, you know, I've told this story a few times, so I won't, I won't bore your listeners with it here, but he was basically, he was like, my, you know, I'm really on the line here and I need to know that you're on the line right there with me. And I was in the, the really enviable position of being able to tell Ken, like Ken, if you run this, if you let this out the door, it will absolutely slay for you. And I believed what I was saying with every fucking molecule of my being. I knew it, yeah. you know? And it was like, I knew that shit was tight. I didn't know exactly, like before going into production, I didn't know exactly how it was all going to play out. Um, but I think we had a lot of very talented people creatively and um, we had an amazing account person in Mary Perhatch and, and – uh, Caroline Wellman, now Credit, she was an amazing strategist who kind of unlocked everything. You yeah. know, she was sent out. She was a young strategist who was sent out to corroborate this fiction from Heineken that their drinker was a worldly, urbane, cosmopolitan preferer of premium drinks and all this kind of shit. 
like go out and confirm that our audience is a bunch of fancy pantses who will pay extra for this beer in the finest drinking establishments. And she's like, um, okay. So she goes out and she's just talking to people on the streets of New York and she was getting shit scared and was even afraid to admit she was scared because nothing of what she was sent out to validate was show was coming up well, as true. On, based on your description, you basically created a campaign that mocked their fiction. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And um, what Caroline found out is that guy, more than anything, guys in the target group were shit scared of being thought of as boring. So all we did was give them, we mocked the idea that anyone even is pressured into being so fascinating and so fucking interesting that that is a fiction. And let's just instead give dudes something to talk about when they're in the bar. Yeah. Give them an interesting wingman that, that when, they, when they do run out of words, like they were, liter- they were specifically scared of engaging a woman in conversation and running out of things to say. So now they can talk about these ads and we'll give them, you know, hundreds of one-liners that they can reference and they can all have a favorite and they can compare notes, et cetera. I was once driving my car and saw a most interesting man billboard that said, his morning breath has hints of saffron. (laughs) And it was so funny. I almost crashed my fucking car. Solid. Um, Do you have a favorite line or do you have a line that never made it just because it was too rabble rousing or something? Probably I've forgotten all those. Over time, you know, we got the whole thing rolling with a few hundred lines and we um, just page after page and we had um, Will Lyman record them all. We, I think we did – we put together like an audio hype reel before we even went and shot TV. So we had all these lines in the can and yeah. we were just looking at – we didn't even know how many lines were going to constitute one spot. You know, we didn't even – we didn't storyboard the first commercial either, you know. And we're like, how many? I don't, how many of these thoughtlets are we going to cram into a thirty? Uh, and I think the first one has essentially three and a half or four, maybe three. So it's about three on average. So, yeah. so all the, I'm just mindful of having created that that um, that t- template. Let's call it um, that format, that platform. I'm mindful of lines that came along that were good. Like some were just fell on their fucking faces after our hundreds of lines ran out, but some were great. And so I remember some of those. The My favorite being um, he wants parallel park to train. I think that's great. That's great. I remember that, you know, media impressions are really cool and can lions are really cool. When Michael Jordan tracks down your brand spokesperson in the airport and asks him for a picture. Did that happen? That happened. And that I, I didn't know if you knew that happened, but no. to me, that's got to be the ultimate, like through the looking glass moment. I was also just in the Denver airport and there was this store selling art and it was like pop art of Marilyn Monroe and jewels from Pulp Fiction. And then the most interesting man. And my question Jesus. to you is who is buying 25 by 30 art in the fucking Denver airport? Some good souls. Yeah. Do they package that up and it's waiting for you? And <laughs> is that in baggage claim yeah. when you get to your destination? <laughs> yes. I did a commercial, a radio commercial with Michael Jordan once. Um, 
and had him be interviewed by Father Guido Sarducci for these like <laughs> – it, was, it wasn't even for radio. It was for print advertising. I don't know if you remember the – there was a series of ads where it was just a shoe and an 800 number. I remember Father Guido for Nike. I don't remember a Michael Jordan interaction. Yeah. So there was a Jordan shoe with a number and if you called it, you heard this crazy fucking theater of the mind thing with Father Guido Sarducci and Michael Jordan. And I just know that after that recording session, Michael Jordan turned to his agent and said um, – don't ever make me do that again. <laughs> that was my crossover with Michael Jordan. That's pretty solid. Don't, well, so so look, but for a while you so for a while you were the high life guy, and then you know I don't think I'm breaking any news here that you don't already know. But for the rest of your life, to some degree, you're going to be the most interesting man guy, in addition to other guys. But mm-hmm. you're you know that's a that's a a legacy. Um, there are a number of reasons why those associations are positive. Have you ever found? either of those associations to be challenging or problematic? Are you ever with clients and they kind of unfairly task you with, you know, where's my, where's my most interesting man? I wish they would. No, it's never, no, it's never been a, never been a problem. I mean, I, I remember early days at Fallon, we were in a couple weird pitch meetings that probably, um, you know, with the kind of clients who don't really have a lot of use for the value add of creativity. Um, and I remember our then strategist saying like, you know, this guy created the most interesting man in the world. So this thing we just pitched you is essentially going to get you those same results. And I remember thinking like, why the fuck would you say that? This is not that. <laughs> like, what? They don't want that. And like, what? No. So yeah, no, it's not for everybody. Right. And yet obviously it is for everybody. I mean, I wish everybody would ask for, I wish everybody would sign up for that level of being talked about and being in the spotlight. Um, and in my experience, people will pay lip service to that desire, but they will not make a single decision trending toward that actually yeah. happening. Everyone knows the right stuff to say in the conference room. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is people will say, most interesting man, where's mine? And they're looking for something that emulates it that could never live up to the original um, I think they just completely dissociate. Like, well, like icebreaker. Oh, let's all, oh, you did that. Oh, I fucking love. Oh, and then my, my nieces call me the most interesting man in the world. Right. Ha ha. Okay. Let's get down to the brass tacks of doing something completely anonymous and forgettable. <laughs> right. And let's talk about all the reasons why we have to do that. And you're going, can I talk to the, can choice. I talk to the guy I was having yeah, a like, drink go, with? Yeah. Go back, go back and say, access your humanity for a second. Because all this this fiction about how everybody's looking at you and judging your professional career and your right. your qualities as a human being based on the boring work you put in the world, that's all fake. That's not real. As you say that, do you have any sympathy for, especially as a father, you know, you, you, you better understand maybe than you did in your mid-20s where the fear comes from. Oh, I, told, you know? I completely respect and it, the it does, fear. It doesn't mean that the thing that we fear most won't be the thing that will end up happening to us. So if, you're, if it's going to happen, at least – do it on your own terms. Look, there's there's always fear. You can't wish the fear away. And I do respect the fear. I, I respect the full spectrum of, of human feelings. Um, I think where people err is in the department of self-awareness, where they're not even aware of how afraid they are. Mm. And they're not even aware of the decisions they make because of it or to avoid it or to distract from it or to make sure they never have to feel any pain or never have to have an uncomfortable exchange with somebody or, you know, just a, a host of things. Yeah. Um, we can convince ourselves of a lot. And you see that playing out in, in every dimension of American life. Um, 
So, yeah, I respect that. It's, you know, it's hard to be, it's hard to be human and it's hard to be, it's hard to be human in, in everything we do, including our jobs. Well, as a CCO, I mean, you can't be the day-to-day creative director for every account. And so strategically, the times you choose to come in, whether it's, you know, super upstream or in the role of the closer in some cases, I mean, isn't so much of it about attempting to say the one thing that you really can't say, maybe most interesting man uh, notwithstanding, which is, I guarantee this will work. So you can go to your boss and tell them that this, this will definitely 100%. You can say so many things. You can walk right up to that line. You just can't say that. What do you mean that I... That you can't say, I guarantee this. You can't say the one thing that they really, really need to hear, which is, I guarantee this will work. Oh, I can. But at some point, it's not a rational conversation. It's not about guarantees. They'll, they'll I mean, they might even believe you. Like, I mean, are you saying it because it's true or are you saying because you know that life will work out either way for they, you? They might, they, might, they might agree rationally that this thing that you're proposing is absolutely amazing. It will be talked about for a decade. There will be a point in time um, in American culture before and after this moment when this hit the world, right? They will agree to that. They still won't want to do it and fear will keep them from doing it. And they'll yes you to death, like, yes, so much enthusiasm for this. Let's do this other thing now. We'll come back to that. We'll talk about getting that going next time. And that's just like a, a, well, this a is, yesing you to death conversation. This is a form of rejection and our business has a lot of rejection in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've seen all the different versions. Do you ever struggle with moving? The cowardly rejection? Well, there's the cowardly rejection. There's the extremely direct rejection. I've heard people on this podcast say that a client didn't have the words, so they spit on the screen. So, you know, it comes, there's a a spectrum. That's an opinion. Yeah, exactly. You sort of admire it. But there's a spectrum of rejection. As a result of that, do you ever struggle to move through rejection without losing enthusiasm? I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. Like, and I can see where when people are just kind of sliding into a... (laughs) A bad place. I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, fuck. Um, you don't ever want to be in the business of selling some selling someone something that they clearly clearly don't want. Uh no. I mean, it, it's how you define what people want. I mean, people often don't know what they want. You know, sometimes you just have to plan the kid's birthday. You have to get the present that the kid didn't ask for, but you know the kid's gonna like. If you ask the kid what the kid wants, the kid's going to give you a very specific list. And if you give him only the things on that list, he's going to kind of go, okay, tick the boxes. And he's going to be robbed of the experience of surprise or joy or elation, right? You can't ever give people what they say they want because, A, people don't know what they want. And if you do, they're, they, you just disappoint them. I mean, I, I, the Orson Welles quote makes so much sense to me. Don't give people what they say they want. Give them what they never dreamed was possible. That's what people want. To get to that place. And so sometimes yeah. it, you, you, I find myself in a position of kind of like, well, I know they don't think they want this, but this will get them what they want. Right. You know what I mean? This will get them the results. This will get them double-digit growth. Yeah. Um, to they, get, might, they might not know it yet. but To, to get there requires oftentimes in this business – uh, compromise and, mm-hmm. and compromise in the purest sense of the artistic world is a bad word, but compromise is quintessential to what we do for a living. Um, 
Arby's, I'm going to assume, you know, you didn't immediately embrace a mandate to show 30 straight seconds of static beef sandwich. Um, I insisted on it. You did? Yeah. Okay. That was my playbook. You know, at the outset, it wasn't 30 seconds of beef sandwich. It was 30 seconds of meat. You know, were you at Crispin when they did the Goomba campaign? I think that was Rob Riley's campaign. The Goomba campaign. Yeah, with that we fucking did a Bert- New York detective guy who's I wasn't, like shoving no. slicers through a fuck. Like, I wasn't. I swear to God, I saw that fucking commercial maybe forty times and never knew what it was for. That guy ran or for who ma- it that guy was ran from. for that guy ran for mayor last year in New York, basically on the Trump platform. Just fun, fun, fun little fact for you there. Yeah, he seems like a great guy. Um. But yeah, my, my whole approach to Arby's was uh, like roast beef was their problem. They were only known for one thing and it's a thing nobody ever craves. Uh, and they actually have a lot of variety on their menu. And if you can shift them from being a, a sad roast beef brand that's only talking about how they slice it, raising questions about what the fuck it is. Um if you shift them from being that into being about meats, which is something every red-blooded Trump-voting American can fucking relate to, then they'll have a chance. Um, and in order to get people to realize, no, really, the meats, it doesn't come, as the internet suggests, from a jug. It's not, it's not a pink liquid that turns into Arby's roast beef. This is the cut of meat. It's a turkey. It's a whole turkey breast. Here it is. So make people look at it for way too long. Right. Here's the brisket. Here's you know what I'm. Here's yeah. the ham. And it's all real meat. And it's all great. And I loved every trip down to Atlanta to go to uh, Neville's Test Kitchen and just gorge. You speak about this with a lot of passion. I do. So that campaign lives on. The most interesting man campaign lived on for many years. What's it like for a guy like you who has all of this passion and who who puts so much into the salesmanship of an idea you believe in to sort of watch your baby live on without you. Is it hard? No. No. You feel like you you feel like you've left people in good hands. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel. When you left Fallon in spring, um, you're a CCO, so much of the job is about running towards fires and there's always a fire. Uh, in those couple weeks after you leave the job, is it a, and it wasn't the first job you've ever left. That's a that's a you know a high pressure, high capacity job. But is it a strange couple of weeks when your phone's not exploding and you're not needed every second? Uh, is it hard for you to turn that off? Yeah, but not because you know not because of the chirping baby birds and the phone. It's just uh, yeah, I don't know. The brain just doesn't quiet. You know, to quiet the brain takes a real focused effort, and I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope I'm getting better. I think a lot of people are realizing the value of um, focused, quiet attention and time with self. And so um, what I realize is that we I, – I bring the same energy to everything. Right. So whether I'm whether I'm in these sets of conversations and in these rooms and in these places and in these airplanes and on this phone, it's like whatever it is, I do it in the same way. Like the way you do anything is the way you do everything. I'm going to fucking stress about whether I'm jockeying for an advantageous position here in the line to pick up my kids at school. Like it's fucking crazy. 
it's crazy. So I'm, I've decided to, uh, to quiet the crazy and, and try to focus on, on things that I, I hope are a little, uh, a little deeper, a little more meaningful for everyone. It sounds like, that, a, like it sounds bu- like a worthy mission. Yeah, busyness is a plague. Uh, being in senior roles means taking on certain responsibilities that have nothing to do with the creative part of the job or the part of the job that you loved in the first place. Is there an aspect of management that you enjoy more than you would have anticipated when you first got into this business? Well, you know, it, it's weird for like a a white person of of born privilege to say this, but you know, I always had this idea. I always felt like an outsider. I always felt like an alien. Um, so I have a lot of time for people who are coming in from the outside or who have their faces pressed up against the glass or they want to be a part of something. Uh, and they don't feel like they are. And I like to make a home for those people, give them a seat at the table, include them. They can be clients who, you know, were previously always shut out of the mystical, magical, all-important creative process. They can be creatives or they could be they could be um, latent creatives who are in account service or community social community management. Um but who obviously have an amazing take that they only let sort of come out the sides of their mouth on rare occasion. And so I just – I'm just really paying attention to platforming other people's voices, platforming other people's ideas, giving other people like, – like creating lanes where people can channel themselves into exposure and uh, put more food on – on more tables. It's interesting to hear you say that in light of you just describing yourself as a fire hose because I would think <laughs> that – well, I would think that maybe it, one, one challenge for you is that you do have a big voice. So if, if the enjoyment of management is to is to empower and embolden other voices, then it means that – Absolutely. It means subtracting yours sometimes maybe when totally. it, it's going against your instincts. Yeah. Um, it's so cool though to see people step into themselves or to see like the spark of recognition come into somebody's eyes or when people realize what they can do and they take it on, even, even if they're wobbly at first, it's just like, it's fucking great. Yeah. It's great. And too few people have that experience of discovering what's in them. And I had so many goddamn people trying to put me in touch with what I had. I've had so many people for so many years telling me what they see in me and it's completely alien to me. You know, I don't, see myself the way they see me, but because they kept seeing something in me, I had all this opportunity and I want to do the same thing for other people. Everybody wins. It seems like the fair way to uh, approach things. Yeah. Um, Do you ever feel like as a result of of the way that you describe your mentality that you can be sometimes sort of complicit in um, in the conditions that you're trying to avoid? in creating a, a really solid department or creating a, a place where unique voices can can flourish and thrive? Absolutely. I mean, you, I, I, I don't know when I realized it, but it was a good while ago. I just realized one of my biggest challenges, because I do have opinions and I, I am not afraid to express them, um, I have to make sure I leave room for others, right? Because I don't want to be um, – I don't want to cl- eclipse anybody's sun. 
And I'm, I can do, I can just, people can choose to do that in my presence simply because, you know, daddy's big today. I don't want to be that, you know, I want to, I want to say, I've got your back, you know, so. When you're in a room and there's ideas all over, all over a wall, there's a couple teams standing behind you and they've been working hard Mm -hmm. and you're going through it and you see an idea you love. Mm Mm-hmm. What does that moment feel like? It's great. I mean, it's can, the can best every, thing. Does, do, does everyone know you love it? Do you go into a protective place? Do you go into a euphoric place? Oh no, I'm so happy. Like I can't. I mean, I'm. I'm. I wish I were better at hiding <laughs> disappointment. <laughs> I mean, creatives have often laughed at me for like trying to hold my face onto my head with my two hands, like you know. Yeah, I feel bad about the Arby's campaign that I didn't even do. Yeah. <laughs> The Goomba campaign, man. I'm like, geez, I didn't do it. I just didn't get it. And I love you, Rob (laughs) Riley. You know I love you. We all get busy. Do you you worry about being too hard on people or too easy on people? Fuck yeah, I worry about being too hard on people. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, people need need, need care and watering. And – but motherfuck, when I see something I love, I'm just like, that is is just – that is fucking great. That is great. And there are a few times – there are a few times that just stand out in my career where I heard something and just went, that's amazing. Is it a generational thing in terms of being hard on people? Like people were hard on you and you benef- you benefited from it? People weren't – that well, I mean people in this sphere weren't hard on me. I mean mm-hmm. this business can be hard and so the circumstances can be hard and it, it's hard to crack things. It's hard to like – it's hard to know always what to do. It's like – and I'm I'm just kind of like – my brow knits, you know, and I'm like, when I feel like I'm up against something, I'm in, I'm in like this torturous fight mode until I feel like I've, I have an answer. Yeah. You know, it's a boiler, and I used to talk about that when we were creatives together because it's just like you, you're like pre-pitch before you have the answer is a, it's the most miserable place to be. I think the most, it's the fa- worst. The most fascinating part of that is so often the best work has this quality of obviousness to it. If there's a magic trick that when you see Arby's, we have the meats, you go, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. what else could it even been? Of course. You know, it could have been a million other fucking things. Of course Jordan was going to fucking leap the lane and yeah. dunk that. I'm a Mac like, and I'm a PC. Why... What else could it have even been? <laughs> sure. you know, like there, well, there's, uh, exactly. There's an inevitability to the things that work. Right. Where you, yeah. Like in hindsight, my favorite example is um, Hot Buttered Soul from Isaac Hayes. You know, like, what the fuck do we know? Like that album exists and it's seminal and it's influential. And we're like, of course, that's the album he he had to make. You know, he was like, that had to come out of him. And, and that, yeah, that was, you know, that's what he had to do at that time. And that's what, man, you go back and you read about that album. And it is so, it's as unlikely that that thing would come into being as that there would be life on planet Earth. <laughs> you know, and yet there the fuck it is. Like, it, no, it was not inevitable. And no, it it does not occur to everybody to play basketball like Michael fucking Jordan, making it look easy. And the things that seem obvious in hindsight just aren't. It, like, uh, it's a tie dad. Great example. Yeah. Like, what a fu- what a wonderful insight. Of course, all the clothes and all the commercials are spotless. Yeah. You know. That's a great. Everything's that- a tie dad. Just highlight it. You know what's Done. interesting about that one? That one is a great example to me of of. An obvious idea written in a paragraph in a Word doc, but it's like, cool. So you came up with a cool idea in a Word doc. Now Sometimes for, that's enough. Sometimes sometimes <laughs> that's definitely enough. But then to then to figure out how it actually works, right. how it actually works in the Super Bowl, the, the efficiency of it, the economy of words mm-hmm. to, you know, to essentially deliver 
eight commercials mm. in you know over two over two thirty second periods of time is like I just yeah you you have to be in this business a long time to appreciate the maniacal work ethic that goes into this the subtraction of of everything except that which is fundamental to the idea yeah I mean they just they found a brilliant thing and they just matadored out of its way let that thing charge around I, I just it was great yeah it's great a great insight a great truth could just makes life really easy. You talked about worrying about being too hard on people. How, how, if at all, has parenting changed your management style? Oh, I'm the worst parent. <laughs> I'm terrible. I have the same, I mean, like. How has management changed your parenting style? Uh, I mean, my, you know, what, what really bothers me is my personal energy level. You know, the day can just vacuum it out of you. And by the time you get home, there's no, there's no room left. And so any demand is just like, it's an encroachment on your personal peace and sanity. And, um, I, you know, I have a habit of, if, unless I get my mind right, I just respond with like, I'm just like a, a dog growling because he feels like everybody's crossing into his turf, you know? You don't like when your wife asks you how your day was. I do not want to relive the day when the day is done. No, no, it's like colossally irritating. And, you know, she she likes this profession and knows everybody in it and all the people I deal with on a day-to-day basis, so she wants to know. And I'm just like <laughs> – now, I'm a terrible person, man. I'm, I'm not a good I'm person. getting that from you. Yeah. I uh, No, I have to check my energy. I have to – I want to be as responsible in my daily knee-jerk reactive conversation and communication as I am in my communication on behalf of brands. I would like to be that responsible in every interaction. Sometimes it's given to me. When it's not, I'm very disappointed in myself. Right. And um, something I just, you know, have to make amends with. Like I'll say, Una, I am – I just – I appeared angry right there. I am not angry with you. I am responding to my interior world of stressors. I am not angry with you. You are wonderful. And yes, I want to hear all about your day. Let's take a walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you almost have to hear yourself say it out loud so that you know it's true. Yeah. But Once I, you, you know, hear it, it's like a different person is talking to you, instructing you on on the person you want to be. Totally. And I, you know, I wish I could model for her the person whose chakras are perfectly aligned and who walks um, two inches above the ground emanating peace and, and light for everyone. Um, I'm not that guy. Is that yet. what parenting's supposed to be? That's <laughs> – Shit. <laughs> That's where I'm headed, I, I, I hoped. <laughs> Switching gears, good ideas are only as good as our ability to sell them. Yes. Uh, you have a certain charisma that oozes out of your pores, but what is your what is your relationship to the idea of salesmanship? Every job's a sales job. And um, I think I'm pretty terrible at it. I mean, knowing – and this may go back to your very first question, what did my parents do? My dad was a salesman. And I was taught from a young age not to respect my dad. So that includes salesmanship. I don't, I don't, I don't respect sales. I don't respect people who um, find themselves in a position where they have to sell. That's weak and that's vulnerable. Um, but I realized with time that every job is a sales job and no idea is brilliant until a client thinks it's brilliant. Um, until a client has internalized it and almost treats it like his or her own idea. 
so until it's the client's idea, it's not brilliant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I give myself pretty low marks for salesmanship. I think I did all right on the pitch call I had before I rode the elevator up here. But uh, again, I was dealing with a very reasonable and intelligent Dutchman. But they might have uh, been yesing you to death. You don't know. I, yeah, I don't think so. Dutch or direct. <laughs> if, you, if you suck, they're like, I don't like it. Thank you, though. <laughs> um, I wrote that High Life Manifesto because I didn't want to do the job of selling the work. I wrote all the, you know, I wrote, I wrote some spots. We weren't sure exactly what that campaign was going to be. We had an inkling. Um, but I knew that if I read that manifesto to the people in the room, there's no fucking way they could say no to whatever followed. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm not going to present the work. The work will present me. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I'm just so that manifesto was a sales document. You can't, it's just this, you know, persuasive rhetorical thing. And after you hear it, you feel like a complete asshole if you're like, mm, I don't like script three. You're just like, no, whatever you say, we're going to a big epic place and I'm following. Yeah. That's why I wrote it, because I suck at sales. Yeah. Do you struggle with nerves at all before client meetings? I... I get uh, – I don't struggle. I mean um, I do get nervous though because I feel like – I do feel – it depends on you know the nature of the meeting and so forth. I've been very relaxed by the way since uh, – We started this podcast? Well, anyway. No, I've been very relaxed since leaving the, um, the network agency world. Yeah. Um, because I was never quite sure – in those meetings, what the clients were expecting and whether by saying something extremely truthful or saying something with passion and conviction, whether I was betraying something that had been sold to them by somebody else. Um, you felt like there had to be a disclaimer, like the views expressed by Fallon Minneapolis and Jeff Kling, you know, theirs and theirs alone. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I just felt, I just felt more alien in those roles and, and in a lot of those conversations than I think is technically necessary for the successful conduct of our business. And so I'm much more at ease now. Um, I get nervous now in a way that I never had this good sense to before though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm also cutting way down on, on drugs, you know, and by drugs I include everything that distracts us from ourselves. And I'm coming to view distraction as a trillion dollar yearly industry that people will do anything to distract themselves from themselves and what they feel at any given time. Um, and the more I try to stay here, like right here, um, which is hard. <laughs> And unusual, the fewer distractions I have, um, the more I become aware of my feelings. And a lot of those feelings are uncomfortable. They do tend to anxiety. They do tend to nervousness and discomfort. And I have to, uh, I just have to be with that. Yeah. I can't ignore it. I can't, you know, handsome my way through it. Pour a drink on it. Can't pour a drink on it. Um, I don't video game it. I don't, I mean, I don't, there's a lot of things I don't do anymore. And so I have to be with all these feelings that I've spent decades trying to escape. 
and it's weird. Yeah, I guess that was a little of my question from earlier is like what happens when they shut off your email? And yes, you have – like they shut off your email and you you amicably, amicably leave Fallon and you've got plans for the future. But not right this second, not oh, right this shit. week, not right this month. And all of a sudden right. like you don't have anything to do with your hands. <laughs> You know, you don't have anything to do with your brain or your face. And so like, yeah, and no. so there you are. I, get, I mean, moving to New York is, gives uh, somebody a lot to do with his or her hands. Right. Um, no, I got around the email problem, shut off problem by just not answering email. I gave up on email about two years ago, maybe longer. I just don't do email anymore. I don't. And it's I, I hate to think what I'm losing out as a result of it. I'm sure people have are, feel slighted because they wrote me and I never responded and they think I'm big timing them. I'm not. I just – there's no room in my life for email. Um, and what's immediate, it, it gets texted or phone called. But like email, no. Can't do it. There's too much of it. It's like – it's crazy. It's yeah. a crazy way to, to do things. Yeah. Um, so much – we talked about so much of our job has an – element of failure to it. Do you have a favorite failure from your career that maybe led to, you know, wisdom or led to a later success? Maybe it was the stand-up. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, with the stand-up, it was just like, I, I really, I kind of wanted to bomb out day one just to be completely free. I mean, that was like, I tricked myself into being free. So I would be expressed and just not fucking worry so much. It's yeah. like, if you start from the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. So the failure is like part of the so that success one, and the success yeah. is part of failure and they, they go hand yeah. in hand. That one was a, almost a strategic self-sabotage. That was yeah. a, great, a great marketing campaign. I, I would have you. preferred yeah. to stand up there and deliver all the jokes the way I imagine them in my head to, to, you know, great effect and, you know, seeing the underside of people's nostrils as they're throwing heads back and like, but it just didn't happen that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but failure, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't keep score like that. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, all of this just is what it is and it's going wherever it's going to go and we can make better decisions or worse decisions. Um, and I'm going to try to make informed, self-aware, expansive decisions that create more opportunity for more people, whether those people are creatives or CMOs or, or um, people with trying to bring a new product to market or, you know, people just trying to to do something and create what wasn't there before. Yeah. You know, people trying to make it new. Um, Once you got into these senior roles, there was uh, an expectation that you would interact with CMOs. Did that come naturally to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there are people on there are people in that role. I mean, my God, what's, what's the average lifespan or of a CMO now in a role? It's like 13 months. Yeah. It might even be shorter. CMO is brutal. And the, like, you know, if you're a CMO, what are your choices? It's got, it's like, it's so much more bewildering than like to be a professional athlete and decide where are you going to go put in your, your limited time, yeah. you know, to make, to make your mark and make your money. Um, I'd like to see more people give themselves more permission, you know, to fail. Like I might, I might win, I might lose, but I'm not going to be timid and I'm not, I'm not here just to mirror the world back at itself or to be translucent and let everything kind of flow through me. I want people to know I was here. I made choices. I made decisions and, um, and I can talk about those yeah. and I can represent them. I can own them. Ownership is super important. Yeah. If it's going to be 13 months, at least make a dent, you know. My God. 
Yeah, I know. And it's like, you know, or, or fail spectacularly, but who really, who really flames out? I mean, nobody. I, just, I see people kind of doing nothing and failing upward and having conversations and really just kind of moving from job to job before they ever get found out. That's what I'm counting on. I wish you luck. <laughs> if I can help, let me know. <laughs> I've seen uh, people. It's a playbook. Uh, a question for the creative director inside of you. Yeah. Um, when do you know when something is done? Can you be a, a tinkerer to your own detriment? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can always, I can be, um, I can want too much. I can always like want to continually feed the beast and feel like more, more, more. And I, I have trouble recognizing when enough is enough. I ask the same two questions to end every episode. The okay. first is in a presentation to a client, what is the most horrifying response you ever received? I think this was my, um, Gore-Tex client. Um, and he said, that is off by at least a million miles. <laughs> uh, he wasn't my Gore-Tex client at the time. He was my would-be Gore-Tex client. And I was pitching Gore-Tex again with Boiler, uh, this time in Amsterdam. And uh, Tomas was a really interesting Czech gentleman. And he was, that is off by at least a million miles. <laughs> okay, say more. I'm listening. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was good. Maybe his metric conversion was off, and he didn't realize how much a mile was. Yeah, maybe he meant a, a million millimeters, which I think is only like you know still super far, forty-seven kilometers. Yeah, it was off. And the final question is called the one that got away. You've been doing this for a long time. What is that one idea uh, that still lives in your soul? You've never been able to sell it for whatever reason, but God damn it, it's just. Oh my if God. you could have made it, it would have been awesome. We had some amazing ideas for Old El Paso, which still, because of its provenance, plays like a middle of the grocery store brand. Um, and the work we had proposed for them, I mean, I still, I ha it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I would weep tears of joy to see that shit hit the world. And the world would go like, oh my God, where have you been my whole life? We love you, Old El Paso. Well, maybe in the next thing that we don't quite know what it is yet, we may maybe that's a first client that <laughs> whose um, door we need to knock on. I mean, I'm I'm friendly with the guy who heads up Old El Paso, and we even had an off-piste lunch where I told him the backstory and pitched him that work and showed him that spot, and he loved it, loved it, loved it. But I think he knows that if he dares stick his neck out that far within the organization where he's toiled for the last 20 years and which is paying his kids' tuition – he would. He just risks too much. Lucky and for you, Taco and Salsa executives aren't huge fans of this pod, so I don't think he's hearing you say any of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, there's a lot. Whatever. You just you kind of just stick and move. There's always another idea. Jeff Kling, thank you for all the spice you've added to the National <laughs> Knockwurst. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Amit. <laughs> Appreciate the time and interest. Uh, thanks, man. All right. Thank you so much to the great Jeff Kling. Thank you to The One Club. Thank you to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And if you're digging the pod, as always, please subscribe, rate it, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace.